This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to FIGP's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. FIGP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FIGP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FIGP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to FICP's webinar and podcast series, FICP Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Patenting software-related and computer-implemented inventions can be challenging. In Australia, case law and patent office practice has made the landscape challenging to navigate. This webinar includes a panel of Australian practitioners who will share their different perspectives with suggestions for both local Australian attorneys as well as foreign patent practitioners whose clients are interested in filing into Australia. The discussion will be relevant to a wider audience, we hope. Amongst others, we will discuss how the patent office persists in, erroneously perhaps, conflating manner of, man manner of manufacture with inventive step and how practitioners nevertheless have to navigate their way around this. Our speakers today include Matt Peeney, who is a trans-Tasman attorney qualified in physics and electronic engineering. He started as an Australian patent examiner back in 1990, gaining first-hand insight into the landmark computer-related case of IBM versus the Commissioner of Patents. Matt entered the patent profession in 1999 and worked as in-house corporate net counsel in the mid-2000s before establishing his firm Peeney IP. Ronel Gildenhuis is an electronic engineer and principal at Foundry IP. After some involvement in the Apple-Samsung patent wars, she briefly worked in-house at the iconic Australian company Breville. Today, Ronel's practice has a strong focus on computer-implemented inventions for both local and overseas clients, ranging from hardware electronics through to fintech and e-commerce. Alyssa Telfer has a Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Engineering Biomedical Specialization, providing her with a background in electronics, control systems, physiology, 
and anatomy, neuroscience, and medical physics. Prior to joining Phillips Ormond Fitzpatrick, Alyssa works with her team to navigate the constantly moving legal landscape affecting computer-implemented inventions and develop strategies and advice for clients seeking to protect inventions in this field. Welcome to all three of you. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. Let's start the discussion with, and I think we alluded to it a little bit in the in the preamble, in the introduction. So where are we at? What kinds of claims typically would go through the Australian Patent Office without raising a subject matter rejection? What are some of the key hooks or handles that examiners are going to say, ah, okay, we're fine. Let's move on to the other issues with respect to examination. I'll go first. I'll say that um, I think anything that's very physical in nature. So if the invention relates to mining or relates to something that's that's clearly got some physicality to it, um, you're probably good to go. In contrast to an invention that has feelings of e-commerce or networking or things where it kind of feels like everything's happening inside the computer. At one end of the spectrum, we've got things where what we probably could conceive of as being control systems. So you've got you've got a computer that's making calculations based on some inputs, but it's having this impact on the physical world. Yeah. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got, I think, Ronell, you alluded to uh, fintech or e-commerce. So things that are potentially a little bit more esoteric, um, a little bit less tangible. Certainly, people can't perceive the same nature or the same kind of physicality, if you want, of the invention. So those are are probably way out at the other end of the spectrum. But in between those two, are we getting, are you able to convince the examiners to grant some claims? Can I pop in here with that one? I, I would agree with what Ronaldo said, and you've summed it up well, Louis Pierre. I think the problem does lie in the middle ground. Uh, with uh, it's not every every invention that involves computer implementation that's become problematic under this law of manner of manufacture, as we say here in Australia, or patent eligibility elsewhere. It's, for example, in, in the middle area, you could have uh, something like a business process or um, some kind of commerce scheme, shall we say, and we'll get to the word scheme in a minute, I hope, where there is a physical effect, like bringing two remote entities together, a buyer and a seller, which has a physical physicality to it. Um, these are the ones that smack of um, what I think is a problem with the application of the invention rather than the nature of the invention, which, uh, if I can just jump right ahead, I think many of the problems in the Australian decision making is that it's where 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 the decision makers examiners who are basically following the policies and the decisions in the court are looking for the substance of the invention i would proffer just as this individual practitioner based on my knowledge of some of our greatest cases is that i would ask the question not what's the substance of the invention that leads to what's the advance and what's come that's not been here before it's more a question of what's the nature of the invention that manner of manufacture asks. But uh, I think it is the middle ground between those two extremes and the spectrum that, that, that are problematic. I guess that's one of the points I'd make. I think that's right, Matt. I think, you know, the cases that seem to be swept up into this category of difficult prosecution because of manner of manufacture are the ones where there is a computer implementation and either there's no physical element that's being 
affected or there it's hard to make out the the technical feature of it so the technicality of it and if, if it's a non-technical problem being solved i don't think that excludes the application from being accepted but i think the enablement requirement and the level of disclosure that is required to justify the grant of the patent in those cases goes up quite a lot so you know where it's just a business idea or a e-commerce idea that's um, claimed quite broadly the examiner will be looking for detailed enablement in the disclosure and then also in the claims well, i think that's a very good point Alyssa, because to get back to the substance shall we say of your question louis pierre what shall we do what type of claims will will be more safely handled or passed through to allowance and acceptance i think it's a case of i i often advise not only my children but some clients swim in your own lane when it comes to the basics of preparing a patent specification really nail the invention get good examples um Alyssa, as you're alluding to it's not only a conflation of other topics such as inventive step that's at stake here with manner of manufacture, and it's as though the decision makers are clutching at other areas of law to get an understanding of this standalone field. Quite often, sufficiency of description, written support, enablement, these are the things that will very much sway in your favour if you have a computer-implemented invention in Australia and a decision-maker is looking at a full description of, yes, if there's some technicality that can be brought into the problem, but it doesn't necessarily need to be so. I agree, Alyssa. But if you can give a good description of the problem and an understanding of the problem, and then also a very good 101 on sufficiency and how examples of the invention are brought into being and so forth, the claim should then fall out. And this sounds like a a drafting exercise. Well, in fact, it is. And that's what, what, what helps uh, when it comes to these these manners of manufacture issues, I think. So so I think you, you raise an interesting point, which is that the drafting of the claims sometimes is an important aspect in getting some claims through. And I'm just going to divert very, very quickly. In, in Canada, for example, the examiners, when they look at the claim, they can actually notwithstanding the language of the claim, they can parse out some elements of the claim and say, well, this is just a, a normal computer doing normal activities, and, and therefore it's not considered to be an essential element of the claim. And then once you've parsed out these different elements of the claim, then the examiners are left with what is, in their view, um, a, you know, a, a pure algorithm or a pure you know, mathematical construct. And then you know, Bob's your uncle and you, you've got a section in Canada anyway, a section two rejection. Do the Australian examiners have the same approach of being able to ignore, put less weight on some of the language that's used in the claims? Can that trip you up sometimes? In a word, yes. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. I think Matt referred to Matt referred to what was your language, Matt? The difference between the, the substance of the invention and the nature of the invention. Yeah. Um, and I think we definitely have gone away from looking at the claim what, what is everything that's in the claim and so never mind taking out all the bits and pieces and 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 keeping they hang on to they sometimes hang on to the the scheme or the the abstract idea because they've thrown out all the other bits right even more than that and i suspect it's it's a bit similar in in canada as well is that the examiners will look at the specification as a whole and they will decide what the substance of the invention is completely irrespective of the language that's in the claims. So we we are in a, in a very tricky situation. So where we've come from is 
that there was case law and certainly a strong practice to say that if you have a computer implemented invention, it's patentable subject matter if the advance is in the computer technology. So if the program that you've written results in it being faster or, or you know, using less memory, those are, those are basically the two things that you're always hoping you can find in a specification. Is it Does it run faster or does it use less memory or less processors? Because then you have a foot to stand on. We do have recent case law that has brought it away from that a little bit that says the advance doesn't necessarily have to be in the computer technology as such or or in how the com- the computer runs but that's a bit vague i think i don't know what, what your thoughts are matt and Alyssa, but i feel like we now we now have a court decision that says it's it doesn't have to be an advance in computer technology but there does have to be some some technical advance right the the words that the high court used were an improvement or an adaptation in the way the computer's used and I think, you know, we have this real difficulty that I think the examiners are grappling with, and certainly the courts are, on determining the substance of the invention. So, you know, our most recent Apex Court decision was the High Court matter in Aristocrat, where we received the judgment late last year. And in that case, we had a very unfortunate situation where instead of having seven justices where there could be a split vote due to illness, there was a six-judge bench. And on characterising the invention, three judges went one way and three judges went the other way. So if (laughs) the smartest people in the land have difficulty addressing this starting point question to determine whether or not a claimed invention is for a matter of manufacture, I think it is a very difficult territory for us to navigate. And so to the extent that we can prepare specifications that contain as many signposts that we've derived from the case law as we can. I, I think that's a good way to go, but it doesn't help us in advancing applications that were drafted, you know, six, seven, eight years ago where perhaps the disclosure was a bit lighter on and the emphasis was not on, you know, this um, technical advancement either inside the computer or outside the computer. Um, they probably may have, well, they may have been drafted a, a bit more as an abstract method. And so these are the cases that I think are really challenging us in the current prosecution landscape in Australia. And I think that's a common point to various jurisdictions. You know, we, we are looking at applications that have been drafted sometimes six, seven, eight years ago under a different set of what was the understanding at the time. And the goalposts keep changing when it comes to patentable subject matter especially in the computer related arts. So one of the questions I have and I'm not I don't want to impung any ill thought on anyone but the judges in the courts in Australia like most of the judges here in Canada are not necessarily technically trained. I mean they're they're lawyers to to begin with and sometimes you know they're they they don't have the technological training or awareness or do you think that plays a factor in some of the case law that's been handing down and again it, it's very subtle and it's not it's not a I don't want to you know paint everyone with a with a very broad brush but it seems to me that maybe that is a factor that that there is a, a lack of technical understanding on the bench I think that's almost certainly the case Louis Pierre and uh, and, it, and that goes down through to all decision makers and even dare I say, in my time in the patent office in the 1990s, there was uh, I was uh, positioned between two subsections, one in the area that dealt specifically with computer-implemented technology as one of the technologies we examined, 
and then also communications technology. And there came um, a glaring, and it was not just simply in Australia, it was an international front where there was um, movement to say that when it comes to patent examination as such, not the examiners as such, there was a need for a greater, with the burgeoning technologies, a need for greater prior art base. So we crept into more non-patent literature, engineering indexes, et cetera. Um, because when when things like multimedia hit the scene back in the early 90s, some of this was, um, it would have been almost impossible to find prior art in the patent database that would have been useful and relevant, whereas uh, in non-patent literature, it was there. So there was a recognition of that uh, and, and searching became more focused. Then there was the competency of the examiners to get to the point of your question. Uh, and there was a real push for examiners to be um, further studied in the field, hence my postgraduate electronic engineering degree following a physics degree. Um, you know, that's what sparked that with the assistance of the patent office. Um, maybe those questions alone should be asked through through the hierarchy of the decision makers. It's it's certainly been a point that's been raised for decades in patent law in Australia is the, is the technical literacy of the uh, the judges, uh, you know, who can turn their mind. We've had a couple uh, of judges who had some uh, technical background. We've had a few of uh, uh barristers that have got splendid technical knowledge uh, and there should be more of that. I think it would only be helpful for us all. Uh, if I could just make a point on the aristocrat decision for, for what it's worth and if I say anything that's of any enlightenment here today, I want to give a quick acknowledgement to just three sources and that's the patentology blog of Mark Sommerfeld. I'd commend that to anybody out there to follow that. This topic will never be given justice in a 30, 45 minute um, thing. We'll try and scratch the surface, I hope, and we're doing okay so far. But um, this is the sort of topic that, you know, a 100,000-word dissertation might might give it some justice. But the patentology blog is worth following with developments. Mark's a fairly astute um, follower of the field uh, and technically qualified to boot, as well as his use of the English word. Uh, I'd also, I'd also recommend in the Intellectual Property Society Journal of Australia and New Zealand, there was an article produced in 2018 by a chap called Patrick Conrick, and it's entitled um, Patent Protection for Software-Related Inventions Under Siege in Australia, Myriad and the Semantics of NRDC. That's just a wonderful treatment of our still our, our highest authoritative case on manner of manufacture, which is NODC, and I'll qualify that to say that it's still and been affirmed in Myriad and in the High Court as the seminal case, the authority on the patentability of processes and methods, not necessarily products. Um, that article by Patrick Connick is worth reading. And last but by no means least, I want to give some acknowledgement to Alan Evans, my mentor in the patent office and a colleague now. But with the aristocrat decision, it's unfortunate, as Alyssa said, we've got a split three-way, three judges. Um, that meant that the federal court decision to uh, to basically deny patentability to the gaming machine product stood. It did not, under our Judiciary Act, it did not affirm the reasons for that decision. And that's mm. just a, a teaser of the situation we're in. One little glimmer of hope, though, from the aristocrat decision is that it did have both sets of judges for their own reasons, they dismissed the so-called two-part test that we've been becoming accustomed to here, and that is what um, 
Ronell was describing before, and that is that and examiners do this in part of their uh, work is they'll look for in this so-called search for the substance of the invention claimed. They'll ask the question, is this uh, an unpatentable scheme? And if it's yes, then we'll ask whether it's been implemented by the computer and in the implementation there's invention in, in improved efficient architecture, etc. Well, the High Court judges, thankfully, um, came to a conclusion that that was really conflating the issues and making it very difficult to determine patentability. And computer-implemented inventions, thankfully, that's the first time I've heard from a higher authority in the land, don't need this special attention. So there is a glimmer of hope on the horizon. What what I'd like to add to what Matt has said in this regard, and and 100% I think there's a problem with judges, you know, our, our judges hearing these patent cases are, are generalists. We don't have a patent court like they have in the UK, for example, which I think is a pity because some of these concepts are very complex to get your head around. And I think especially when you have a technology like software where you can't see it, you can't hold it in your hand, and if you haven't actually had any training in it, it's very hard to conceptualize. Everything feels like an abstract idea. And so we have all these judges that keep saying it's an abstract idea because to them it's abstract. So that is a, is a problem. But I think another part of it, like the flip side of the coin, is most of our high-profile cases end up at the full federal court or in high court with the other party being the commissioner of patents. And so... The other party that's providing information, input into the system, into the decision-making um, system where the judges have to make these decisions, the other party that's providing them with what they need to know is the patent office. So if our, our judges are ill-informed and making decisions that, that we feel are complicated and perhaps not ideal, I do think that a part of the problem is the way that the patent office is managing it. So I think that that's an interesting point, and that's something that we're seeing in some other jurisdictions as well. Is the fact that a lot of the a lot of the law surrounding patentable subject matter is not coming out of infringement litigation or validity litigation? It's coming out from reviews of the commissioner's decision to reject a patent application, and that has, you know, given rise to any number of problems in terms of, you know, having the proper record to be able to evaluate or to interpret the the claims at issue um so so i think that that's a that's an interesting point and i think that's unfortunate but the situation that we're in I, so I, I think matt did allude to some of the some of the positives that came out of the aristocat case but is there anything else that we can that you can see that came out of that decision that m might be helpful or not really but that you know, beyond the fact that it was a split 3-3 decision, is there anything else that comes out of it that is is newsworthy? Oh, look, I think on the whole, the profession was really disappointed that we didn't get any clarity. And so aside from the small green shoots that we've already discussed, I, I don't think that there was a lot that was newsworthy about that. Um, the composition of the bench has changed since that decision. So I think if the current High Court was to hear that matter, the outcome may have been slightly different. But I think what they have done is reaffirm, as Matt says, that NRDC and the approach articulated in NRDC remains our authority and we just have to continue to operate within that framework. And I think hope as a profession and push for a profession for our clients who have difficulty or, you know, reach a stalemate with the examiner on 
um, cases where we think the law has been applied wrongly to agitate that further and maybe try and get the type of outcome from the courts that would provide some better guidance for us. But unfortunately, you know, the types of applications that have been heard in um, the area of manufacture, manufacture, you know, setting aside the the um, Myriad decision, which related to um, genetic materials, really related to advertising methods, um, e-commerce schemes and methods of presenting information, which and in, in many, in all but two of the cases, there have been innovation patents. And I think that that has not helped us to have the right subject matter to test the law before the courts. So we hang in there in hope uh, that someone brings a, a better case to test the thinking of these justices. Yeah, That's it's... very true. I think I think one of the things that the High Court decision maybe highlighted was there is this practice in the patent office to conflate inventive step with subject matter. And I and unfortunately, I don't think the High Court decision helped with that very much. In my opinion, it should be a separate issue. Whether something is patentable or not is different to whether it's new and inventive. But what happens is, and I think this is this is sort of the my biggest my biggest tip is when you when you're prosecu- prosecuting or you're looking at your claims, that particular feature, that element in your claim that is considered the novel and inventive bit that piece has to be technical in nature. And so in that respect, I think um, the High Court decision has left us with this sort of mixed up practice of mixing the assessment of inventive step with patentability. So your inventive feature has to be technical. Is there, uh, are there other cases that are making their way through the courts right now in Australia? Or are you like in a situation like in Canada where really the courts get a, get a look at this maybe once every six, seven years, 10 years maybe, and uh, and there's a dearth of cases in between. Well, I think the answer to that is yes and no, Louis Pierre. There there are some cases, and uh, Alyssa, Ronell and I were talking about one case in, in suit is the Ubi Park uh, decision by a single judge in the federal court that's found a, 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 this mechanism or control of uh, a parking access uh, to be patentable, um, probably more importantly. I mean, that's a fairly clear area of a physicality and an application of the computer for control systems, as you eloquently described before, Louis appear in introduction. And so it wouldn't seem to be controversial, but I think in the climate that we're in, this decision is sort of giving a bit of impetus to the fact that there are reasonings that are starting to blossom that might be getting back to following some useful precedent law that exists. I think it might be worth just mentioning quickly that we're in partly why we might be in some of this state of confusion with this conflation of topics such as inventive step and and subject matter. We had a decision in the 1990s, Phillips and Mirabella, that looked at the new Patents Act, which in our Patents Act in Australia, we have a definition of a word invention that says any new manner of manufacture as defined under Section 6 of the Statute of Monopolies I think if we talked about could there be changes to help clear the air a bit, the parliament could help us here by by deleting the word new from the definition of invention in our Patents Act. It would go a great way. And I think this is where I'll be, you know, I will give some um, room to the decision makers, and I include patent examiners and judges as well as policy makers, that this that they could be understood to be confused by this, particularly with a case like Phillips and Mirabella. 
where lawyers will argue no matter what, even if they don't believe in the reasons for what they're arguing, that they'll win the case for the client, but it can muddy the law. There's a former federal court justice who was a lawyer in that case who has boldly admitted to me that she said, mea culpa. I was part of what, what made that decision. I think, you know, I think any vigorous advocate for one's client will take a position that will try to espouse a client's objectives and sometimes that can lead to funny results but oh, i'm sure renell and Alyssa will be absolutely shocked to hear that i've said some ridiculous things in my time Alyssa, <laughs> you think, wanted i think you wanted to say something yeah look i think that's really relevant what matt says about you know his conversations with a former judge because you know as renell highlighted it's been the commissioner who's been presenting submissions and presenting evidence on behalf of the office in a lot of these cases and of course Uh, They're involved in the litigation because they are agitating for a particular outcome. And because the judges are non-technical typically in their background, they are completely reliant on the expert evidence that's presented on the one side by the commissioner and on the other side by the applicant, the patent applicant. And so that has created what might be an unrealistic framework for understanding really what the law needs to provide for us in terms of guidance. And I think, you know, this issue with Phillips and Mirabella and a manner of new manufacture is what has led the examiners to have as their starting point um, the state of the art when they are trying to understand what the substance of the invention is. And, you know, we've had an examiner here in the office and I've been asking him about what their process is for examining applications and specifically manner of manufacture applications. And he said, you know, we conduct a search And the search is to inform two things. One is the state of the art for determining the substance of the invention. And two is novelty and inventive step, but they conduct that in one search. And so quite often they are referring to patent literature as the starting point for understanding the state of the art or what they are deeming common general knowledge to understand what the advance is and what the substance of the invention is. And he actually gave me a really useful tip, which was, you know, the examiners have limited knowledge in some situations of what the state of the art is, and they may make an assumption based on the outcome of their search. And so to the extent that the applicant disagrees with how they've characterised the state of the art, we can push back and ideally with evidence and say, you know, you've identified this prior art document as the starting point. That's actually not common general knowledge. And here's evidence that indicates that that assumption is incorrect. And he said that's a really useful way of providing some persuasive um, response to understanding what the real nature of the invention is based on what the advance over the state of the art was at the time. Very interesting. That's a really practical tip, and it also highlights the problem we've got. There's also some borrowing of European law in the UK where they're looking for that technicality in the invention as well, which is a problem because that goes back to a comparison with what is now and what has been before. You, I mean, you're prosecuting applications not just on behalf of your domestic and international clients in Australia, but you're also prosecuting applications for your domestic clients outside of Australia. And from your point of view, how would you consider that the Australian environment compares to other jurisdictions? I think well, there seems to be a lot of overlap you know all these all these sort of um english speaking countries for example look to one another's courts and i think the the patent offices sort of borrow practice a little bit so there is a lot of overlap but certainly um some differences as well some of the differences are you know not not particular to subject matter so for example we all know that in the us it's the luck of the draw of which examiner you get and 
you know, you, you can get very stuck there if you have an examiner that's not on your side. Whereas in Australia, I find, you know, we we, we complain about the patent office, but in reality, the Australian patent office is, is fairly reasonable to deal with. You know, you you can phone up an examiner and you can if you if you show him something sensible and reasonable, he'll he'll see your point of view, which I don't always experience in the US. But I do find that our US associates um, tend to have a, lo- a lot of tricks up their sleeve. Um, so certainly, I would I would defer to the way that they do it. Um, and then in the in Europe, I find I've had the experience where examiners will come back with suggestions, which is which is quite unusual. I don't know if anyone else has experienced that where. I'll get an, an office action and the examiner says, no, no, this isn't patentable, but you know, that feature in that claim, why don't you put that in? Which I which I thought was quite extraordinary. I don't know what you guys have experienced. Not as helpful oh, as that. No. I was lucky. We actually did no. a bit of analysis of this a couple of years ago to ascertain if the Australian applications were receiving treatment that was different to related applications in other jurisdictions. And this is going back probably two years at the time. On the whole, not really, except in the classification, which I think is GO6Q, which is software-related inventions. And in that case, there was a bit of a skew indicating that it perhaps was a bit more difficult for certain applications in Australia as compared to prosecuting the same subject matter in other, other countries. But I think, you know, we keep talking about a technical advance and, and a technical problem. I think, you know, um, looking at, uh, in preparation for this um, webinar, I, I reflected on the examiner's manual. And one thing that's referred to more often than I realised was a 2016 decision in Aristocrat. And if you read that case, it actually gives a really good tip, which is, you know, even if the specification per se does not articulate a technical advantage, if the invention as claimed does have a technical advantage that is met by the embodiment in the specification, you can argue that in submissions, even though you can't point to text in the specification that explicitly supports that. And in that case, it was a gaming machine whereby the a number of different games were presented on a screen simultaneously with different denominations that you could select to play with whichever game you wished to play. And the specification was setting up the invention as, you know, a a better way of entertaining game players. And the office said, well, the examiner said, well, that's not a patentable invention because it's not technical. But in submissions on a hearing before the commissioner's delegate, the the, uh, submissions presented an alternate view, which was this is actually making uh, a more efficient gameplay by simultaneous selection on a touch screen of a game and a denomination. And that's a technical improvement. So the commissioner's delegate actually allowed the case on matter of manufacture. And I think that's something that we can remember for these older cases where perhaps the specification wasn't drafted to highlight a technical advance. You know, if we can still draw one out based on what the embodiments are that are disclosed, we can present that in submissions and it can be, be of some persuasive value to the examiner. Obviously, it depends on a case-by-case basis what the invention is and what the technical advance is that you're arguing. But I think, you know, as attorneys, we need to remember that sometimes you don't need to be entirely constrained by the words of the specification and we can look to, you know, what the real practical advantages are and if they are ones that we think have a sufficient degree of technicality, then we can present those as well. That sort of leads me very naturally into the question I was going to ask next, which is, you know, what's the road ahead? Does does the environment now give you any kind of confidence to articulate a business case to your clients to file applications on computer-related inventions uh, in order to round out their IP strategy? Or are you 
on the other side of the fence saying, you know, it's going to be really complicated. It's going to be really expensive. Maybe it's not worth it to to file. I mean, where, how are you advising your your clients these days? Well, so generally, it does feel a bit uncertain. Like there have been a lot of changes, and every year something happens, and the practice changes a little bit. And so we've been quite uncertain, but we remain optimistic. Um, maybe maybe a bit eccentrically optimistic, but in Australia, you can continue filing divisional applications. That's a little bit different to many other jurisdictions where you're limited. So certainly what we do is, you know, you don't have to request examination when you file. You can drag your feet. You can file a divisional application. So there are some cases where things are just a little bit tough. And if the applicant doesn't mind having a pending application indefinitely, um, then then that's certainly one strategy. Sort of, you know, let's wait it out. Let's see what happens in the in the case law, and let's see what happens in the in the patent office practice, and keep filing a divisional application and just delaying everything. So that's absolutely one strategy. But I think we do have some tricks up our sleeve now. So if you do have a, a patent application where you can see that there is some technical feature, the whole the whole technical solution to a technical problem. As, as Alyssa said, it doesn't need to be described as such in the specification. You can still argue that. So we do, we certainly do have some strategies. I don't think it makes sense to not file an application in Australia if you have commercial interests in Australia. Right. But you, but it's definitely, unfortunately, the, the reality at the moment that you need to think carefully about what strategy is going to fit with your commercial strategy. So we're, having said we're... that. There is a little bit of there is a little bit of good news. This is not this is not common general knowledge, but um, IP Australia last month sent out a, a an RFQ for statistici- statisticians and researchers and whatever to do research exactly on this topic. So, how does how does Australia compare to other jurisdictions? How does the prosecution in Australia differ to other jurisdictions? And how does the um, the practice of IP Australia in the way that they examine computer implemented inventions affect applicants? Do they file or do they not? So there is this, to me, it looks like a huge research project. I don't know who would be able to find and analyze all that data. But for me, that's a glimmer of hope. It means that IP Australia acknowledges that there is a problem and that they need to assess what is really happening. And I'm, I'm hopeful that they're going to tie that and bring it back to the policy behind what patents are. Like we, we want to encourage innovation and not tell people, no, don't file, no, don't worry, it's not worth it in software. On, on that last point regarding the the survey that's being done by IP Australia, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm saying something that's not applicable to Australia, but in some of the other jurisdictions, we've seen certain certain areas of technology receive quite a bit of support from the applicants themselves. For example, the pharmaceutical, biotech, uh, chem, life sciences companies tend to be fairly involved when it comes to lobbying efforts and speaking to the the lawmakers and speaking, speaking to the policy makers. I don't think that we've seen except in the United States, which is, I think, a bit of a unique situation. But in most of the other countries, the tech world or the software industry hasn't been as 
active in supporting these kinds of discussions. Um, in fact, in some cases, one might argue that they're actually deliberately on the sidelines. Is there an opportunity or is that a similar situation that you're seeing in Australia? And and is there an opportunity to engage the rights holders and say, look, it's costing you too much money for us to fight you. Why don't you weigh in on the issue and try to get some clarity out of it? That's a very good question. I mean, the the markets are different, right? The, the commercial realities in, in, in tech world and the, and the pharmaceutical world is different. Um, so that's that's one aspect of it. I think I think that attitude of not getting involved is going to be something that we see in the software world. But then also in Australia specifically, the the market's fairly small. I mean, why I invest in a huge legal battle in Australia when you know you have the European Union or you have um, the US as part of your market? So I'm not. That would be amazing. Like that would really shift things a little bit. But I don't know that we can hope for any of that. We have had, not not the users of the system in terms of the applicants, but we certainly have had professional organizations like FICPI and IPTA, who's, that's our Institute for Patent and Trademark Attorneys, weigh in, for example, providing amicus briefs to the high court, and they would just brush aside. So I don't know that we're, it would, I don't know that lobbying would make any particular difference unless you have a real heavy weight. And I just don't see that the commercial strategic imperative for for any player in the Australian market for that. I think, you know, the, the pharmaceutical and biotech companies are very familiar with playing a long game. And that's really at odds with how tech companies work. They're about fast-moving technology. And I think for a lot of these companies, they file patent applications begrudgingly. It's not a fundamental aspect of recouping their investment in what they're developing. And so I think Renell's right. You know, the commercial imperatives are very different and we need to find another way of convincing these organisations to weigh into the debate because I think they will have really useful input, particularly because, you know, they're the ones who understand the technology and where it's going. This is the real issue we're confronted with is, you know, addressing where the tech's going. I think uh, there is an ad hoc lobbying, so to speak, Louis-Pierre, there's been a significant rise in ex parte hearings at the patent office in this particular field of technology. So the, the, the industry is not necessarily getting together as a community to put forward their ideas, but they're certainly showing some interest in uh, the backlash to protecting software implemented inventions. The, the number of ex parte hearings is skyrocketing over the years, so their interest is there. And I agree with Alyssa, it is a fast evolving technology It'll be a case of where it'll be a stop and think, where have we been? And then there may be when certain standards, as in the communications field, if there's certain standards in software processes, et cetera, begin to be adopted, then you'll get some more attention from the community as a whole. But it's it's a question of, uh, again, swim in your own lane would be my advice. I'm, I'm forever hopeful that we're going to get some clarifying decisions. I think we're on the verge of that happening in the next, I'm going to say, 10 years, not five, which doesn't sound very promising, but it is a long game. And I've been around long enough to see the pendulum swing from one side of the school board to the other on this. I mean, in 2006, anything, many things, business schemes were being granted. Where business schemes are not excluded from patentability in Australia, it's, it should be said, it's only mere schemes, that which is an abstract idea. 
Um, and it was just luck in foreign jurisdictions. I had a the PK2 case that went to the Patents uh, High Court in the UK, and it was thankfully two weeks before we were heard, Justice Burse made the decision on um, Halliburton that basically uh, cut down half the comptroller's case against us, and that was that we had nothing but mental steps. So if you can get a 1,000 monkeys and a 1,000 typewriters to do what you've claimed in a computer-implemented invention, that's not going to hold anymore in the UK, thank goodness. Right. Yeah, and and someone commented also, I think, and it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier regarding the fact that a lot of these cases are being brought to the judiciary, the, the courts, through appeals or reviews of the commissioner's decision. And so is there perhaps an inherent conflict of interest on the part of the of IP Australia that, you know, they're they're preaching for their own interests in in trying to to perhaps you know, have less work to do because if they reject all these applications, they get the fees, but, you know, they can reject the application. Anyway, that's a very cynical view of things and I don't want to suggest uh, anything untoward. Well, we don't, we, we can only guess at what their motivation is. I think that's, um, we don't really know. And that's part of the problem that there isn't really transparency about what the policy decision is behind pushing back on software. So one question has just come in, come in on the Q&A, and I, it is an interesting question. The High Court decision was issued, what, about nine, ten months ago, something like that? August, August 17, 2022. Okay. I only remember that was my birthday. <laughs> Serendipity, in a weird way. What worst, is. worst birthday present I ever got. <laughs> can, so can, can you comment on the recent record of the Patent Office hearings since the decision? In other words... Um, this person says that as of last month, there were 22 office decisions that had been handed down relating to patentable subject matter, and all of them were rejected. Not one was found to be a manner of manufacture. And so the question is, well, given that environment, is it worth it to have a hearing um, uh, because the, the office is digging their heels on this? And th there may be some subtlety in the question that I'm not capturing properly. I think one of those 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 numbers were um, posted by a colleague of mine, Mark Williams, who had been monitoring these decisions over the course of the last twelve months. And I, I my recollection is that one of them was sent back to the examiner to examine on inventive step. But I think the numbers speak for themselves. You know, if I was looking at the probability of my hearing on the written record um, changing the outcome of examination, I don't think it looks. Good. I think that's an interesting question. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that since Aristocrat last year, one thing that has not changed is uh, the patent office practice. Quite often you'll see an update to the examiner's manual. There really hasn't been any update whatsoever to practice in the examiner's manual. And that leads to the point that there may be some digging down. Yeah, the practice has not changed since Aristocrat's decision at all. So we, we still are waiting for that. I think the nuances of the aristocrat decision, in other words, that point that we were making earlier about the uh, dismissing of the two-part test, we yet to see that fall on what otherwise could be deaf ears. I don't know. Oh, I think, to be fair, the office never had the two-part test in the examiner's guidelines because they deemed after the yeah. full bench decision that it probably wasn't going in the right direction. Uh, I think yeah. there have been tweaks to the manual, but, but yeah, I mean, the... Uh, 
a high court decision never really gave us any extra guidance, so I'm not sure what they would change. You're right, Alyssa. There's more of that uh, seeking for the advance in the art and that sort of that Macrossan four-part test that's still followed in the Patent Office of Governor's Practice. But but there's been no update on the substantive uh, decision. And again, I'd probably refer people to the patentology. There's an article on this uh, 30th of November 2022 entitled High Court's Aristocrat Debacle Leaves Patent Office Practice Unchanged. So that's on patentology for anyone who's interested. Listen, um, we've gone way over time, which is certainly a testament that this is a super interesting topic and there's probably a lot more to say about it. But unfortunately, I, I must bring this to a close. Just, you know, in one word or two, Alyssa, any last words? Um, I'm optimistic. I think the fact that we didn't get a bad outcome from the High Court is really good. It could have been so much worse. So we should be pleased with the uncertainty that we have. <laughs> if I could, glass half full, perhaps. Count your blessings, right. That's right. Matt, any last words? I, I tend to agree with Alyssa. I'm I'm hopeful. I think we're just waiting. We're we're one good decision away from some some substantial uh, clarity and light, if not by its substance, by its nature. <laughs> Let's see what happens. I think we're on our way. We have momentum in the right direction. That definitely feels like a bit of a groundswell. Things are changing. Things are shuffling around. And in the meantime, we we have some some t- tricks up our sleeve to navigate the murky waters as we wait for some good decisions to come. And the new legislation in the US looks, we should keep a close eye on as well too. Um, There might be some sentinels out there for us all. There there might be some trickle down effect. Yeah, you're right. When it, it, if and when it does pass. Matt Peeney, Ronell Geldenheis, uh, Alyssa Telfer, thank you very, very much for your participation today. This was a brilliant conversation. On behalf of FICB, thank you very much for your time, and we'll see you at another edition of the FICB Focus 45. Thank you, everyone. You're welcome. Good evening. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.